Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I will be your host today for this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Elliot Gorn, who's a professor at Loyola University, Chicago, about his new book called Let the People See, the Story of Emmett Till. And this just came out from Oxford University Press in 2018. Hello, Elliot. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Christine. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. A little chilly in Chicago. (laughs) I can imagine. Uh, Not so chilly in Texas here, but we appreciate you joining us on the cold day. And to start, I was hoping you might tell us just a little bit about yourself and your career as a historian. This isn't your first book, so maybe tell us just a little bit about how you got interested in history and what kinds of history you've been studying. Okay. Um, Well, I'm, I'm in my well, I guess late sixties now or mid to late sixties. So, so I've been at it a while. Um, and, uh, I'm not exactly sure why I became a historian. I think about that all the time. I love history and I love writing history and I love teaching history. Uh, but exactly how it happened seems a bit of a mystery. Um, I'm, I'm an American historian. Uh, I really come out of a graduate program, American studies. I do American cultural history and I'm, pretty easily bored. So I've written on a number of topics, a book about uh, early prize fighting, a book about the labor organizer, Mother Jones. Um, uh, I got interested in the uh, era of outlaws and gangsters in the Great Depression and wrote a book about John Dillinger and now Emmett Till. So um, I I vary a lot in what I do. Uh, and I tell students, since I've taught at a few institutions, I tell students that it's, I'm in the witness protection program and they give me lecture notes and that's how I, that's how I know what to say. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, and how did you get interested in Emmett Till? What brought you to write this book? Uh, that's a good question. And, and once again, I don't know that I have a good answer other than that um, the, the subject, I started thinking about it around 2009 and um I happened to have a Fulbright that year and I was away and, and I kept thinking about it and it wouldn't, the subject wouldn't leave me alone. The more I read, the more I looked into it, the more it seemed like something I needed to do. I was, I kind of wanted to move forward in terms of time and uh, study something a little bit more in my own lifetime, though I have no recollection, direct recollection of the till murder and, and, and trial and so on. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, the more I looked into it, the more it seemed like something that was very central to our own times, the post-World War II era. And at the time, also, it was a subject that was not done to death, far from it. Um, there was very, there was not that much academic study. Uh, so it seemed like, it seemed like, and, and let me add one other thing that's always important for me. Uh, I, I care a lot about storytelling, and I have to have subjects that are subject to being told as as told well as stories um and the till story is so complicated it turns in on itself in so many ways Uh, i thought it was an important story to reclaim and and to try to tell well okay so on the one hand, as you say, the Emmett Till story, for especially for a long time, was not the subject of a lot of academic work. There's a couple of books that's come out relatively recently. Um, but it, on the other hand, is in some ways a really well-known story. Um, so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about um, that aspect of it. What 
you think people um, need to know and what sort of is missing from those those narratives, which of course is a big question and your book is about a lot of that, but just sort of the the aspects of what was missing that make this story important to retell. Yeah, it's a very interesting story that way. It was an enormous um, news story back in the summer of 1955. Uh, it was covered coast to coast, headline news, the murder, but especially the trial just a few weeks after the body is discovered, the trial of the two men, and there were more than two involved in the murder, but the two were who, who were tried for killing Emmett Till. Um, just to go back and tell the story a little bit, most people know it, but I'll, I'll they have a, a bare bones notion of it. Mm-hmm. Tell That's it. probably a good idea. Yeah, em- Emmett Till was um, uh, a kid who was born and raised, actually most of his life not in Chicago, but in the little town of Argo at the edge of Cook County. That's important because Argo was it was no racial paradise, but the town was integrated, the school was integrated, the sports teams were integrated, so he. Um, he was used to a life that was not either Mississippi or the south side of Chicago. Um, he went down to visit family, his great uncle uh, Moses Wright, down in a little town of Money, Mississippi. This is a very common thing. Families, black and white, from the south, coming to the north over vacation. He goes there to visit, spend time with his cousins and, and, and other kin. Uh, after he was there a few days, he and uh, a few cousins get in the car and go into town to this little um, grocery store, Bryant's grocery store that served mostly a black clientele. And the stories vary. The stories changed over time. Um, uh, but one thing that is almost certainly correct because his cousins who were there said, it, said it's correct. Um, when the woman who was taking care of the store, Carolyn Bryant, her husband was away, was out of town, was, golfing was, was, was a trucking sh- shrimp down at the Gulf Coast. She came out of the element went in, bought some bubble gum, came out, was watching a checkers game. She came out and he wolf whistled at her. That seems this, that story varies, but it seems very clear from his two cousins, Simeon Wright and Wheeler Parker, who were there. They were absolutely certain and always maintained through their life that Emmett Till did whistle at her. Now, Carolyn Bryant, later accused him of much, much more than that, of laying hands on him, of, of, of making suggestive remarks. Of, it was almost a would-be rape uh, that she accused him of. All right, a few days go by. Uh, Emmett and his cousins go back to uh, Most Wright's home and so on. Uh, they're, they're, they were very afraid. Uh, his cousins knew to be afraid of what could result. This is the Deep South in 1955. But um, some time passes. I think probably the trouble has passed. And then one night, three or four days after the event at the grocery store, uh, Roy Bryant, uh, Carolyn Bryant's husband, and, and his uh, half-brother, J.W. Milam, come to Mose Wright's home, kidnap Emmett Till, take him away, beat him, and murder him. And the body is found a few days later. That's the story. That's how, that's how the story begins. Okay. And so this, when he's found, uh, this does become a big event at the time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why it becomes such an important national story? 
Well, it's it's filled with controversy. Uh, who killed him? Why? Um, uh, this is a, a a kid who had just turned fourteen years old, who's being accused effectively of a sexual crime. Of of when it does go to court, um, uh, the defense attorneys for the two brothers claimed that this was a sexual assault and that they were defending their homes. Uh, and for a lot of people, this is absurd. A kid who has just turned 14, there's not much evidence of this. He's known to be a very a good kid uh, by everyone who knows him. It's also in the context of this, this, this murder takes place just a little more than a year after Brown versus the Board of Education. So it's at a moment when so much is up for grabs in America uh, in terms of the South, Jim Crow, segregation, and so on. It's one more story about about the um, the differences north and south, and also among individuals as to what what the what the country should be doing, where it should be going with this. So the brown the brown story. I mean, with, with the brown decision, um, the South is in an absolute uproar. This is the era of the um, citizens' councils, the founding of the citizens' councils, to make sure that the laws of Jim Crow segregation remain, that there is no change in, quote, the Southern way of life. So this murder takes place. It's, 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 it's horrible enough in and of itself, but it's in a, a very deeply politicized context. Mm-hmm. And so your book talks a lot about some of the controversies uh, surrounding the murder within this context of, of a larger um, controversy surrounding Southern segregation. And so I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about that and about uh, the ways that some of the things we might be very comfortable with or that have sort of become settled in, in today's context, like calling this a lynching, for example, um, were major points of discussion at the time. It, that is controversial, and, and in some ways that brings together so many different things, whether this is a lynching or not. Uh, mostly in the Southern press, for example, uh, editorialists, reporters insisting, no, this is a murder. Maybe guys got a little drunk, a little out of hand, that sort of thing. Uh, other papers in the North uh, insisting that it's a lynching, and especially the African-American press, which is very active in this story, very important in the story insisting this was a lynching, that it was a racial killing, that it went right to the heart of that of the kind of uh, thing that you, you expected with lynchings, a black male being accused of some sexual impropriety uh, with a white female, uh, that, that this was about nothing but lynching. Now, that's important um, because the kind of classic lynching, this horrible public spectacle that we've all seen the photos of, uh, these horrifying pictures, there had been fewer and fewer of those after the 1920s, going into the 30s and 40s. Murders still took place, racial murders. But the the public lynching with, the, with that quite amazing, the shameless look, people looking right into the camera, white people, uh, with no shame that they had done something good for the community, they felt, uh, that kind of public aspect is gone, but the murders still continue. And that this is this idea that this young lad from Chicago, no less, Chicago, such a symbol of, of, of in the South of Southern, white Southerners see Chicago African-Americans out of control. Uh, uh, and it is for 
lacks the land of hope. So it's very polarized. It's a very, very polarized situation in the summer of 1955. And how do Southern whites react to this? I mean, one of the things that certainly when I was probably a college student or something like that, um, I sort of would typically assume that Southern whites just all thought that uh, this murder was basically no big deal. But Southern whites are not nowhere near that kind of cavalier about this. So how are they reacting? No, certainly not. And and and, and it is a range uh but again, arranged within some limits for the most part. Uh, horrified, this is a horrible thing. But also, the Southern courts will take care of it. Mississippi knows how to deal with this sort of thing, and it will. Uh, this is a horrible thing, but let's not make too much of it. Uh, let's just let the, uh, the judicial system uh, figure out what happened. And then, of course, there are those who, who just simply minimize it. Uh, uh, no, there's absolutely a range. But even so-called Southern liberals, um, I think of Hodding Carter uh, and his uh, Delta Democrat Times newspaper, uh, even Hodding Carter talks about the murder. He's horrified by the murder and, and writes about that. And he's very much in opposition to the, to the hardliners uh, for Jim Crow. At the same time, he, he simply, again, the, the, does, does toe that line. The courts will take care of it. We'll see what happens. It, it'll, it will work out. Um, so, the, yes, there is a range in the South, but it's a limited range. Uh, opposing segregation in any um, uh, 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 ardent way is, is, is very hard to do there. Mm-hmm. And so then what does that trial look like? The trial is what really gets the attention of not just the national, but even the international press. It takes place only three weeks after uh, the body is found. Um, the first, but one important part of the story is that um, uh, Emmett Till's mother, maybe Till Bradley, um, uh, manages to get his body sent back to Chicago. That wasn't a given. Uh, authorities in Tallahatchie County were ready to bury it uh, quickly, get rid of evidence. Um with a little bit of help from Congressman William Dawson, uh, her congressman, African-American uh, uh, representative, they do manage to get the body out of Mississippi back to Chicago. And she, of course, goes over the body, identifies it. It's in terrible shape. He's been badly, badly beaten, many broken bones, um, been in the water for three days. Um, she identifies the body as her son, and she makes a decision as she says, let the people see what they did to my boy. At least 100,000, mostly Southsiders, come to the funeral. The body lies in state, in state for a week. The photos are quite amazing of people passing by, looking at Emmett Till, screaming, crying. It's, it's very emotional. It's, it's looking at his face uh, in this open coffin, uh, for so many of them, they were Southerners, African-Americans in Chicago, or descendants of Southerners. They were looking into their own history uh, and were angry and, and, and took great resolve that this that he won't have died in vain to change this. So the funeral itself is an enormous event. Now, in the Deep South, journalists often refer to it as Mamie's Circus, Emma Till's mother, Mamie. It's her circus. So right there, there's this polarization and, and the funeral itself attracts great attention. So that when the trial begins shortly thereafter 
in the tiny town of Sumner, Mississippi, there's already uh, a built-in audience. This little court courthouse still there, seats maybe 250 people, reasonably well. Something like 400 show up for the daily trial. About 75 of them are journalists. Uh, eventually a dozen or so African-American journalists from the Chicago Defender, the Baltimore Afro-American, the St. Louis Argus, also very well-known uh, uh, journalists from the mainstream press, Murray Kempton from the New York Post, David Halberstam, who was a young reporter back then for the Tennessean, um, James Kilgallen, who was a, a very, very senior reporter, well-known for covering trials. The trial lasts a week or so, a day and a half is spent with jury selection alone, really three days of, of testimony. One of the most dramatic events happens at the very, the very first testimony is Moses Wright. African-American man has been a farmer in the South, a sharecropper his whole life, very respected. He's a preacher in the Church of God in Christ, um, very respected in his community. He's asked by one of the uh, prosecuting attorneys to um, identify the men who kidnapped his, his nephew. And this is a black man in a white court. And he stands. Do you recognize Roy Bryant and points and says, there he is. Do you recognize J.W. Milam again points and says, there he is. Uh, uh, when he writes about this, Murray Kempton in the Post says, his testimony had to be the hardest half hour in the hardest life imaginable in America. The trial goes like that. There's witnesses, Mamie Till Bradley, a young man named Willie Reed, who was an eyewitness and saw Emmett Till in the presence of Milam and Bryant and others and heard whipping coming or beating being given coming from a barn and someone yelling. Um, the trial takes place over three days. The judge, Curtis Swango, actually allowed would not allow any race baiting by the defense attorneys. He was a very, very fair judge. Kempton called him the fairest judge he ever saw in his long career. Um, the prosecutors were very, very good. Maybe Till Bradley, after the trial, said so. And some of the other African-American reporters were very impressed with Gerald Chatham. Um, the jury was all white, white, mostly middle-aged men. Women were not allowed to serve on juries. Uh, in Tallahatchie County, which Tallahatchie County was almost two-thirds African-American, not a single person, not a single one could vote. And if you couldn't vote, you couldn't serve on a jury. Of course, that jury, it didn't matter what the testimony was. It was a pretty good case. Uh, not airtight, but a pretty good case against the two brothers. Uh, their own confession of kidnapping Till, um, eyewitnesses, seeing him in their presence. The jury uh, voted in an hour. Uh, that they were not guilty, to not convict. And they talked to reporters and others later, and, and, and basically, especially over the years, simply said that they were not going to convict white men of killing a black. It was that simple. It was a classic example of institutional racism, how the jury is determined by the laws of the, that have to do with voting, uh, and that jury would be an all-white jury. One of the things I found interesting about your book was your discussion of the prosecutor. And I was wondering if you might talk just a little bit about him and his role here and kind of how he fits into this Southern system. Yeah, Gerald Chatham was, um, he was about 50 years old at the time and, and not well. He, he suffered from hypertension. Uh, he could have 
uh, taken himself out and, and not have been the lead prosecutor in this case, but he decided it was important. He was no flaming radical. He was a segregationist like almost everyone else there. And yet he also believed in justice and in the law and, and, and that the law had to be enforced. He was very, very clear about that. And again, by all accounts, you read the trial transcript, there is a trial transcript disappeared for 50 years. And the FBI finally found it when they reopened the case in 2004. Um, and it's very clear that he was, uh, he, he very much wanted a conviction for Milam and Bryant. Um, you read the accounts in the newspapers of his closing arguments. This is a man who's not well, he really isn't. And yet he is, he is pounding the table and sweating. And, and they, it was apparently just a remarkable performance. He was compared to a, a Baptist preacher in the, in those closing arguments. He was, he was very, very, uh, he did very, very well. Mm-hmm. And what's the response to him? Well, I actually have a chapter um, where uh, the Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi, managed to acquire a lot of the letters that came to him uh, after um, the trial was over, when he could go home to Hernando, Mississippi, and, and, and spend a little time reading his mail. And they are so ugly, uh, the, uh, the letters from Southerners who consider him a turncoat, from Northerners who think he didn't do enough. Um, I, I can't repeat the language. I do repeat it much of it in the book. Um, but they are just so ugly. There is just simply uh, um, <laughs> not much. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some, are, some do thank him for his, for his work and his uh, uh, honesty and his devotion. But many of them are just so ugly, abusive letters. Um, there was no, not a lot of thankfulness there. Mm-hmm. I found that chapter really interesting. And I was curious what you think, um, you know, this, this says about uh, this moment, both, both in general, but then especially when one's thinking about uh, this Southern system and how initially, at least a lot of white Southerners who say this was a horrific act, but, you know, the justice system will take care of it. You know, wh- what does this tell us about that narrative? Well, it certainly tells us that um, folks did believe, uh, yes, there, there was a, a strong belief in, in, in justice and that uh, murdering the innocent was, was not proper. Uh, but but that is within the context of a two-tier justice system, of a racially divided justice system. Um, that that uh, as much of it, of course, is to maintain the image of Mississippi. Uh, in Mississippi as a state, uh, I know this is not, um, how can I say, it's not fashionable to talk in these terms historically. Uh, 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 Mississippi is sensitive about its reputation, but it is. Mississippians are deeply, deeply sensitive. They see this as potentially so embarrassing, and they become very, very defensive Uh and 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 this trial is part of that that they that the state looks bad if they don't do justice uh by convicting these guys who are obviously guilty but by the same token that is in no sense does that shake people's belief in the necessity of segregation of keeping the races segregated of of not just segregated but what goes with that is of course uh, it's a caste system that one race is 
deemed inferior and treated as inferior, inherently inferior. Uh, that's that's part of the story. The, the idea, in other words, the idea of the idea of some idea of abstract abstract justice that that could be had manages to coexist in people's minds and white southerners' minds with the idea that segregation can can continue. That these, in no sense, contradict each other. So does that mean this, I, I think there can be a tendency or a, um, um, and I, I see this when teaching about these topics, for example, a, a tendency or looking back to think of that claim of wanting justice or that this was horrific, to see it in sort of cynical terms, to see that as as false. Um, so is part of your reading of these sources to suggest that that's not so much false as that it somehow coexists for these folks while also, or with the general notion that, um, you know, these men shouldn't be convicted. Yeah, I, I do believe that. I, I don't, um, I, I don't think most people are cynical about themselves uh, or cynical in, in their beliefs. I think they, they do want to believe that they are good, good hearted, believe in justice and so on. Uh, I think that sometimes is what makes it very hard for us to understand uh, uh, what motivates people and how they think, how you could look at a system like segregation as it exists day to day, as it's practiced day to day, and believe that separate could possibly be equal. Of course it's not. Uh, It palpably is not. And yet at the same time, uh, there is the faith that that, uh, the justice system would prevail and would bring justice. So the men are found not guilty. uh, And your book spends a lot of time on what happens after that, as well as about the memory and development of the story uh, of Emmett Till. And I was wondering if you might talk just a little bit about um, that phase of his story and a a large portion of your book is about this. So we don't necessarily have to talk about every um, step of that process, but I was wondering if you might pick one or two moments that you think are particularly important and talk about them. Sure. And, and, and let me say that um, the story really remains very interesting long after, long after the trial is over, long after Emmett Till is, is buried and so on. It, It goes on. The story really does go on for years and years. Uh, uh, yes, a, a few examples. Um, well, for one, uh, uh, the memory, I actually begin in the introduction talking about a friend of mine remembering seeing Emmett Till's uh, picture, that famous photo of him, his face beaten. Uh, Mamie Till Bradley did not have the allow the um, mortician to prettify her son. And this friend of mine talked to me about seeing it. And I realized as he described it that, no, he did not see that photo. He couldn't have. What he described is a photo that doesn't exist. Well, maybe he saw the photo of the um, funeral itself, the funeral. No, this friend of mine is white. And white people, very, very, very few white people saw that photograph before, really before the 80s, before the documentary eyes on the prize it was not republished in any of the mainstream press the white press it was reprinted and widely circulated and passed around in jet magazine and the defender and, and other black publications so that alone is part of the memory and an interesting part of how we remember and misremember the story 
but there are other parts of it, I think, um, that, for example, it, this is an important, a few months after the end of the trial are very important, very important moments in organizing in the civil rights movement. What's forgotten is that some of the biggest mass rallies over and over again, they take place over weeks, week after week after week, take place after the Till rally. They're called Emmett Till rallies. When the NAACP supports them, maybe Till Bradley's a speaker, Moses Wright. There's a photographs, for example, of one in the New York Garment Center, uh, supported by labor, by labor unions, in this case, the garment unions, others, the American, the, the automobile workers, the packing house workers, uh, photo in the garment center with, it must be 10,000 people. It's probably more than 10,000 people at this rally. These are really important milestones just a few months before the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, again, part of a long civil rights movement, a long tradition, uh, not just a burst in the 60s, but something that goes on over decades. I think that's important. I think one of the reasons we forget we were white people were ready to forget the Emmett Till story was what became a very famous article in Look Magazine by an Alabama journalist named William Bradford Huey, an article that in which the Emmett Till's, the two killers, the two that we knew at the time, uh, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam, confess that they killed him. Double the, there would be no double jeopardy for them, so they took $4,000 of Look Magazine's money to confess publicly to a journalist. Well, that article by Huey does something else. On the one hand, it alienates those two from uh, white Southerners who feel used, and now they've been outed uh, in a sense for you know exonerating these two men who are now seen to be guilty. Uh, but it also Huey also paints Till as a sort of a of a rapacious black man who boasts about having had white girls, white women, having white girlfriends, uh, that he's recalcitrant, that he says to them he's as good as they are. It's a picture of Emmett Till that no one who knew him ever described him that way. It just doesn't make sense that here's a kid being beaten mercilessly, not just by the two, by others too, and that he's in their faces uh, and, and, and so recalcitrant. It makes no sense at all. But but the Huey article is a kind of fig leaf. Uh, it's a kind of way that people can just forget the story uh, that, that the two were murderers, that Till himself was out of control. Let's just put this asleep to sleep. And it really does. It really does put the, for the most part, people stop, white people stop talking about it. Um, that's an important part of the story. And, and an important part, I think, is also how it finally, the story does get revived, really in the 80s, partly as, as African-American history becomes more, um, becomes taught in schools. Uh, we have the show, the TV show Roots. People, it becomes something of interest to people. And then, like I say, eyes on the prize, that, that, uh, that uh, six-part series of African-American history, of the history of the civil rights movie, Eyes on the Prize begins with the Till murder. It basically is saying that the civil rights movement begins with the Emmett Till story. And from there, there are many more videos that are made, mostly by African-American filmmakers, and the story starts to take off in memory. So many 
U.S. history textbooks, like the Eyes on the Prize documentary, continue to, and, and sort of popular memory certainly, continue to think of Emmett Till's murder as either a starting point for the civil rights move movement, or maybe with a little bit more nuance, think of it as at least a galvanizing point for the civil rights movement that has been sort of bubbling since World War II. Uh, so given that those famous images, which are often, you know, a part of that story, are very much uh, part of a segregated story, actually, or a segregated press coverage, um, more than it's something that everyone is seeing. How do we rethink that story and, and think about it with more nuance then? It's it's really a very interesting question. And, and for example, if you look at the very earliest histories of the civil rights movement uh, in the 80s, before Eyes on the Prize, they barely mention Emmett Till. Um, one of the problems with the Till story is that as for the early histories, those histories are about victories. They're triumphalist. Uh, the great accomplishments of the 60s, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the, the, the stirring stories of, uh, horrifying, but still stirring stories of Memphis and Birmingham and so on, the letter from the Birmingham jail, the, the rhetoric, the defiance, uh, and so on. Um, the Till story doesn't fit very well with all of that because it is a murder that is where, the, where those who commit the murder go unpunished. Um, there are the rallies, of course, to remember, but for the most part, it is it is largely forgotten uh, at first. Um, and it only starts to come back, really, in the 80s uh, and beyond. First, the sheer horror of the story of, of, a, of a child, really, uh, being beaten to death. Uh, uh, there's a willingness to, to, to think about that and to remember that. There's also a strange... Um, kind of a mental sleight of hand, if I can put it that way. Uh, if, if you look at recent, and recently the Emmett Till story has been very much back uh, in the news, almost as, as black background, but it's there all the time. If you look up in the New York Times, uh, Emmett Till and how many, how many times the name has appeared. Uh, actually, um, except for 1955, the next highest period of time is the most recent years, the last few years. Every time there's another police murder, Emmett Till's name uh, gets mentioned. And along with that goes a kind of a sort of assumption that's appeared in places like CNN, Time Magazine, and so on, that, again, that this is the beginning of the civil rights movement. And, and, and that goes with an assumption, a sort of people saw the photo and the scales from, fell from their eyes. And usually the writers mean white people. Um, saw the photos of Emmett Till. Well, it just didn't happen that way. The story was covered, widely covered, but not. Um, but but it, it didn't happen that way. The the memory takes a long time to come back. Hmm. So, I have two follow up questions to, to that. So, first of all, even without the photos, do you think this is a moment where, um, for a lot of white folks, we'll say particularly Northerners, um, that this story is maybe not a, you know, suddenly they see the light, but a story that does bring some sort of um, clarity or sharpness um, to the violence behind the Jim Crow system, especially at a moment when that Jim Crow system has already seen several knocks. It, is that sort of image have some accuracy despite the lack of the images? Or is it more an image that we like to, you know, superimpose on 
on that moment retrospectively? Both, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, it does matter. The 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 the, the, the story does matter, and and it, and it does um, add some weight to the uneasiness that many people feel with Jim Crow segregation. But it's a long, long story. I mean, that uneasiness doesn't lead to massive change, say, for example, or or uh, people, uh, white people desire, I mean, to get any kind of civil rights legislation. There's another civil rights bill was passed in 57, very, very weak legislation. And just getting that was very, very difficult. Um, uh, uh, Anti-lynching legislation, which we go back to Ida B. Wells in the 19th century, the early 20th century. And and we finally, the Senate, the United States Senate, just passed anti-lynching legislation. So it's, you know, we kind of want that moment when things change. And, and it often doesn't happen that way. Um, there's just a kind of weight of history, a kind of weight of events that keep piling up and piling up. And, and finally, some kind of, opportunity comes and people's people are, are, are willing to f- finally as the 60s happen those who for one reason or another were queasy about segregation or queasy about uh, uh, the racism the white supremacy of america finally have had enough that's the way i think i would think about it mm-hmm. and so then my second question is is why this story has become so important more recently, is, do you have a sense of that? Uh, you know, I, I yes, um, it's it's the the Emmett Till story is in many ways very different from the Anne Frank story, but still, in each case, uh, a single horrific murder uh, comes to stand for the larger whole. Uh, in the in the Emmett Till case, again, they're very very different, right? Uh, but a young person, a person clearly innocent, that innocent blood will be spilled. Um, and and, and I, I think also one of the things with, with Anne Frank and Emmett Till uh, is that, uh, again, the, the old expression, and I'm afraid I'm quoting Joseph Stalin here, that the death of one is a tragedy and the death of a million is a statistic. This is how we understand it. But there's something much more, too, I think, why the Emmett Till story has come back as we become aware, more aware of something that's been under our noses for a long time, and that's the the injustice uh, of, of the judicial system with respect to African Americans. No, what happened in Sumner is not the same as what happened to uh, Trayvon Martin or um, or Michael Brown or any of the others who were murdered, whose names we've heard and, and know. But all of them were failures, deep failures of the justice system, where justice should have been done and wasn't done. And Till has really become a shorthand for that, of a grave, grave injustice. So that if you go back and you look at um, the reporting of many of those more recent murders, uh, almost automatically, many journalists began with the Emmett Till story, began their reports. It's amazing how common that became, almost uh, well, a trope of trying to understand our more recent troubles. That's really interesting and, and something that I haven't um, spent a lot of time keeping track of quite as closely. So, um, yeah. It's, it's not something anyone would notice unless Emmett Till is very much on your mind, like you're writing a book and then suddenly <laughs> it just leaps out over and over again. 
in, in the epilogue of the book, I talk about how um, people as diverse as LeBron James, Oprah Winfrey, Dave Chappelle uh, have brought up the Till case in the last couple of years in very, very different contexts. Uh, uh, LeBron James, for example, when, I don't know if you remember recently, within the last couple of years, someone scrawled the N-word on the, the gate, out, the, the uh, fence outside of his home in Los Angeles. And the next day he calls a press conference and LeBron James says, you know, when I saw that, I immediately thought of Mamie Till Bradley. I can't be silent. I can't just act like it isn't there, paint it over. I have to talk about it. And this has happened over and over again uh, with the Till story. It just, it just has been very much out there again. So I want to shift gears just a little bit though, uh, maybe continuing along um, the more present day aspect and talk a little bit about your research. And I was wondering if you could tell us both a little bit of what type of sources you use, but also the experience of doing research. And in particular, you mentioned, I think it's probably in the introduction, but um, kind of just those casual conversations that you sometimes have with people when you're writing a book and, and the extent to which there is still quite a bit of polarization surrounding this case. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, uh, a few times in, in Mississippi, uh, uh, certainly got the impression that people were sort of, well, why are you looking into this? And, and don't we know about that? And do we need more about it? And, 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 and sometimes a little worse than that. Uh, that, that was certainly there. Um, I spend sometimes, I say in, in Mississippi doing research, uh, uh, a lot of places, um, the, uh, Carter Woodson library in Chicago down on the South side has the, the famous Vivian Harsh collection of African-American materials. Uh, so a little bit of time, uh, in New York and the Schomburg collection, uh, but especially federal collections, the National Archives, the Justice Department, um, State Department, uh, the um, actually United States Information Agency was very involved in covering till for uh, uh, American networks overseas. It was, as I say, it was an international story. Um, the, the, the story certainly took me a lot of places, presidential libraries, the Eisenhower Library, um, of course, a lot of newspaper materials. It's hard to do it without newspapers. Uh, when the FBI reopened the case um, in 2004 through 2006, uh, they also, as I say, they produced the uh, trial transcript, which allowed me to write a, um, a pretty long uh, section of the book. I mean, when someone hands you something as dramatic as a trial, you use it. Uh, and, and, and it really allowed me to hear voices and hear voices allow the reader to hear voices talking to each other in some ways uh, 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 of, of, of the segregated South and the African-Americans who, who were opposing that um, and so on. Uh, so, so that was important. I also managed to get, um, oh, I don't know, a thousand pages or so of, uh, uh, of, from a Freedom of Information Act request from the FBI from when they reopened the case. Uh, and that was very interesting material uh, uh, also to have the case file. Actually, it was something like 10,000 pages. Uh, but that was very useful. So so what was the experience of, of doing it? You know, let me just say one thing that's only occurred to me now that the book is finished. Um, uh, as I was writing this book, it seemed harder to write than other books I'd written. And it seemed, um, I, I thought, well, you know, maybe I've just been doing this too long. And I'm getting old. It's just getting harder. And that might be true. 
But I think I realized only when it was finished, when it was copy edited, put to bed, um, that even just writing about this story is a kind of emotional burden. You know, God forbid the the, the burden that people carried who lived it. Um, but even just immersing myself in it and writing about it was was there was a kind of grind in it that I didn't even quite realize was there, um, and only realized it after it was finished. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great book, and I'm really glad that you did write it. I enjoyed reading it, and I hope that our our listeners will check it out as well. I agree with you. <laughs> Very good. Um, so we traditionally, as our last questions, ask if you're working on anything at the moment. <laughs> I will be working on a book, um, I hope, I think. So, much of it is things, are things, smaller things that I've published before, a book called Violent Men uh, about um, American history and, and, and violence, but it'll be uh, more um, article-length things that sort of uh, tie together with each other. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about the book with me. Thank you very much.